Praise the Lord, everyone. Let's not waste any time tonight. If you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Matthew, the seventh chapter. Let me begin reading verse 24 of Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And for a few moments tonight, I want to talk to you about minimums. The Lord bless you may be seated. The Sermon on the Mount, is one of the most interesting passages of scriptures in the ministry of Jesus. When Matthew writes the Sermon on the Mount, he records it in a very unique way that lets us know that this was a very important lesson Jesus taught. When Luke tries to record it, You'll find it in at least five different locations. Now, that makes you wonder, did Matthew just gather all that information and put it together? Or was this an event, he remembered, that took place where Jesus sat down and he taught all of these things? Well, Matthew lets us know by his introduction that this was not a one-time message. When it says he sat down and taught them saying, the verb taught in the original text is in the imperfect tense, which implies or represents continuous action in time past. The most important sermon Jesus ever taught is this one. He taught it at least five times, according to Luke. But the way Matthew writes it, it could be a whole lot more than five times. Every time Jesus went to a new place, he shared the same information over and over and over again. If it was, which it was taught on many occasions, then it must mean something very important in Jesus' ministry. It's just not a casual conversation he's having. This is what he's about. And he declares to them that if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to listen to what I say, but you're going to have to make a choice. Are you just going to hear, or are you going to do more than hear? Is it going to be something greater than just listening are you going to put into practice the things that you hear? Are you going to be more than a hearer and become a doer? Because people who just hear what he had to say is like building their house on sand. And as the storms come, the house is destroyed. If you do what he has to say, then you build your house on a rock. So the difference between just hearing and doing is a lifestyle. It says a lot to every one of us tonight about our relationship with God. God is a gentleman. He's never forced anybody to do anything. God has never forced you to pray. He's never forced you to read the Bible. He doesn't force you to fast. He doesn't force you to witness. He doesn't force you to do anything. If you choose not to do it, then there will never be coercion from Jesus to force you to do something that you don't want to do. 
But if you choose to do it, the difference is it alters not just your life, but the life of everybody that you are connected with. I can tell you that the story that Jesus ends his sermon with could be called the greatest altar call. And in it, he reminds them that some of you have been listening, and in the listening process, you are trying to discover an easy way out. You're trying to find the path of least resistance. So you're listening to what I'm saying, but you're really not grasping what I'm saying because it's it's not become something you do. It's just going to become something you listen to. And listening will never change your life. Sitting in service on a regular basis and hearing the Word of God will not change your life. Life only changes when we start practicing what we have heard and we become a doer of the Word. The illustration that he uses is... It's it's very unique, and to me, it's an incredible illustration. Maybe it's because of my background in construction and knowing that the differences between the two houses is not what they're built on. Actually, sand is a better building material than a rock is. We think about a rock as being stable. But it's the furthest thing from stable. A rock is constantly changing. When the sun comes up in the morning and begins to beat upon that rock, it obeys the laws of thermodynamics and it begins to grow in size. And it starts getting bigger and bigger. Depending on the size of it, it could grow an inch, two inch, maybe three inches, depending on how big it is and how hot the sun is outside. When the sun goes down in the evening, And it's no longer heated, it starts the thawing or the cooling process, and so it begins the shrinking. A house built on a rock will constantly have problems with the inside cracking on a regular basis. Too much movement. A house built on the sand is actually incredibly stable because sand is one of the unique things God's created that doesn't expand or contract. When it rains, it doesn't swell and grow because it's clay. When it's dry, it doesn't shrink. The problem with sand is that it gets its strength by the underlying conditions of what's around it. So its strength comes from the layers beneath it. Sand is not the problem. The problem is location. Where do you find sand? Maybe we ought to start with a definition of sand. What is sand? According to Webster's Dictionary, sand is the decomposition of rock. Sand is the result of rain falling on a rock in the wintertime and freezing, expanding, breaking pieces of the rock off, in the winter time, when winter's over and the spring comes and things thaw out, then the ice, as it melts, carries the little particles of the sand away. And over time, they keep being washed because they have no strength in themselves. That it keeps getting washed to lower and lower and lower and lower levels. It's always going to be found in the bottom of the valley, not on the top of the mountain. It's going to be in a lower area. You're going to find sand in three basic places. The desert, by a river, or by the ocean. That's where sand's located. You could say that sand represents the garbage dump of life. It's where all the junk winds up. It's, it's what happens in life as a result of of things continuously eroding and getting moved from place to place to place to place. Now, a rock has stability. A rock speaks of something that's not going to move. Rain is not going to change it. Now, freezing rain may cause it to lose small pieces. 
But it takes millions of years for it to disappear because it's stable. It stays in one place. If you've ever had the privilege of traveling to Israel and going to the Jordan River, you discover that it is below sea level. It's some 1,200 to 1,400 feet below sea level. If there wasn't mountains that surrounded it, the ocean would fill it in. wouldn't even be there. But because there's a ring of mountains that surround it on all sides, the Jordan Valley is very fertile, but it's very deep. And on either side of that valley are these towering cliffs. So when Jesus addresses this issue, he, he's reminding them of the cliff walls of the Jordan Valley. And the difference is one man said, I'm going to build my house up on top of that rock. The other one says, I'm going to build it down here in the valley. Why? Because it's more convenient. Dear friend called me several years ago, was going to build a new home. And he had found this piece of property over off Interstate 10. And he wanted me to look at it. So I went walked out on this beautiful piece of property. And as I'm standing there looking at it, it's almost like you're not even in the city. There's so many trees, and it's so quiet, you can't hear the roar of cars driving by. You don't hear anything. It's there's You can hear nature. You can hear the birds sing. There's beautiful trees everywhere. But the problem was there's a, as standing at the top of this land where he was going to buy, you're looking down, at one of the bows. And it's probably 30 or 40 feet down to the bottom where the bow was at. And we're standing there and I ask him a question. And my question was, where's the 100 year floodplain? And he said, I knew you'd ask that. So I had the surveyor stake it out. It see that orange flag about 15 feet down below the, the top of the bank here? That, that's the 100 year floodplain. I said, okay. You're still awful close to an area that has flooded on numerous occasions. He said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring at least a hundred loads of dirt in. I'll build it up 10 feet above what it actually is now before I ever build on it. So he did. But we had that little tropical storm showed up here a few years ago and it didn't move. It wasn't even a hurricane. It was just a tropical storm and it started raining. And that area of town got 35 inches of rain. And he had 55 inches of water in that new house. That was built 10 foot above the ground and 15 foot above the floodplain. So we're 25 foot above the floodplain, still got 55 inches of water. We live in a world today that chooses how much chaos we're willing to live with. And maybe that should have been the title of my sermon tonight, is how much chaos are you willing to live with? What are we letting in our lives on a regular basis that has the potential to destroy us, but it's it's more convenient to do it this way? See, people who have problems sleeping often have sound machines. And one of the most common sounds to put people to sleep is the ocean or a waterfall or rain on a tin roof. Those are the three dominant sounds people want to listen to to, to help them go to sleep. Now, if you build your house on the sand... You really can't get a good night's sleep because the first time a storm comes up, you got to start worrying about how high will the water get. The man who built his house on a rock would never have to worry about the conditions around him because he's high enough above the floodplain that no matter what kind of storm came, it would never get to where he lived. Now, the problem is the man who built his house on the sand had all the conveniences. The tallest trees grow in sand. 
Everything you need to build a house is in the valley, not on the mountain. So the easiest place to build it is in the low area of life. To build a house on a rock, you got to drag everything you need to build it up the rock or the cliff. They didn't have cranes. They didn't have machinery to get it up there. There wasn't trees growing up there. So every piece of lumber to be used to build that house had to come out of the valley. But this man made a decision. I would rather choose to get my family out of the world I live in than to live close enough to it that that world starts affecting my family. I'd rather climb the mountain every day of my life or climb down it every day of my life, going to work or coming home from work, than to have to worry about every time a storm came, how much water is going to show up, so that I have to worry about whether my house is going to flood or not. Now, all of us live in a city. We know that's going to happen. It's happened too many times. Does it make us leave? No. Do we worry about it? Yes. See, we're calculating how much chaos we're willing to live with. We're setting minimums of life that we want to live life by. And minimums always produce chaos. Always. When you try to find the easiest way to do something, the odds are incredibly high. Eventually, it's going to come back to bite you. Because the easy way rarely is the right way. When the Lord started dealing with me about this subject several years ago, as I began to study it carefully, the Lord began to remind me of some things that we have taken shortcuts on. First one that came to mind was marriage, that we've tried to take the shortcut of marriage and find the easiest way. I've talked with a lot of young people over the last 10 years that pastors asked me to do premarital counseling for all over America. And I've probably talked to at least a thousand young people about to get married. And what has shocked me more than anything in dealing with young people raised on Pentecostal pews and Pentecostal homes is they all had an exit strategy before they ever started. They all knew where the exit sign was so they could get out if they needed to. Our world is teaching us that it's really not important to stay in anything for the long run. Just look for the shortcut. If you can get it done quickly, all you got to do is, is look at what we will tolerate today as craftsmanship. Years ago, you had to learn a trade. Today, if you can't caulk it enough and putty it enough, so you can paint it so you can't. It doesn't matter what it looks like. So craftsmanship is basically a thing of the past. And, and we're, we, we don't even care about things that, that we can hand to our children, our grandchildren. That's because our world has started majoring on minimums. We don't realize it, but minimalism started in America in the 50s. And as the result of the, what our country started doing, over time, it has begun to affect all of us just simply living in it and not realizing what our world has done. Art became the, middle, the minimalist, where it was just shapes instead of, of details and, and what made things look pretty or beautiful, trees and, and branches or or the ocean and water and, and the waves. That was a sphere or square or cone. And, and they oohed and awed over the shading of a sphere or a, a, a cube or, or that's was considered art. And it, it started in our art. Then it went to architecture where houses started being developed with the least amount of things inside of them. And the more, the least amount of things you have, the, the, the greater people like it. And, and then it started other places and it's wound up in our marriages, our relationships. Let me just give you a few statistics. 
1950, 5% of children born in urban America were illegitimate. Five. 1985, 85% of children born in urban America are illegitimate because we don't think marriage and family is necessary anymore. We quit becoming doers and only listened. And Jesus warned them 2,000 years ago, the effect of reading the Bible and, and trying to figure out the easiest way to live it. Instead of looking at it and saying, you know what, I'm not going to live my life like that. I'm going to let that kind of junk into my home or my relationship. I'm going to choose to live life differently. One third of all serious youth crime committed in America today is committed by children between the age of 11 and 17. 85% of all youth in jail today come from fatherless homes. 66% of teen suicide comes from fatherless homes. 70% of teenage pregnancies come from fatherless homes. 71% of all adolescent substance abuse comes from fatherless homes. By the way, these are government statistics. This is not what Christians have come up with. 71% of dropouts come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. 80% of all prison inmates come from fatherless homes. 80% of children who behave, uh, who exhibit behavioral problems come from fatherless homes. 85% of children raised in fatherless homes will raise their children in fatherless homes. 90% of runaways come from fatherless homes. 70% of child abuse is committed by mother, not dad. 93% of two-parent attack families in America live above the poverty level. Chaos of our world today is not what they're trying to tell us. What's happened is we started allowing minimums in our life. And as a result of allowing minimums in our life, then other things get discarded. A couple years ago, I wondered what the odds of a marriage making 50 years were. Mine's at 47. I'm just wondering how long, what's the odds of, of a marriage in America today getting to 50 years? We're living much longer. People have a greater lifespan. So if, if it should have increased, it should have increased in this generation. And I discovered that only two and a half percent of marriages will ever make 50 years. But what was even more shocking than the two and a half percent is the fact that 57% of marriages will make 30 years. Now, you understand what that means. If 57% make 30 years and only 2.5% make 50, that means 54.5% of divorce happens after 30 years of marriage. Why? Because we start living life by minimums. We start looking at life, trying to find what's the easiest way to do it. And so we've come up with all kinds of things. We, 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 we have minimums about marriage. We have minimums about commitment. We have minimums about time. We have minimums about parental obligations. We have minimums about fathering. We have minimums about mothering. We have minimums about work. We have minimums about church and, and how much time we spend at church. We have minimums about studying the Bible. And, and we're wondering where the chaos has come from. When the truth is, it's because we listened, we heard, but we didn't think doing was just as important as hearing. And so we've heard the Word of God. We've, we've heard the teachings of the Word of God. When I started studying families and, and the chaos that are in families in America in the 70s and 80s, I was shocked to discover that when you go to church, numbers don't get better, they get worse. So if 53% of Americans admit using violence in their families on a yearly basis, you go to church at 60 to 
And I wondered why until I really got to studying. Then I understood why. Because 85% of people who have a problem in their life come to church to fix it. So this is the place everybody comes to when life gets chaotic, when they need help. 85% of Americans show up in church because that's where they know they can find help. The problem is they never fix the problem. They just find something else to do. So they let their lives become obsessed with doing things that take the place of other things. Several years ago, I had been traveling, got home, and my wife said, there's a, there's a pastor trying to get a hold of you. He's called three times this morning. I told him you wouldn't be here until, uh, at least noon and, and he, he's, he wants you to call him. And so I, I we're, we're driving back from the airport and so I call him and he said, brother Hughes, where are you? I said, well, I just landed in Houston. Well, I need you. I said, you need me? Yes. I need your help. Okay, uh, I can come next week. No, no, I need you as soon as you can get here. As soon as I can get there, do you realize what they'll cost? The airline ticket alone is going to be twelve, sixteen hundred dollars. I don't care how much it costs. I just, I just need you to show up. Can you come? My wife's over here in the conversation because it's pretty loud. She's, she was kind of signal. It's okay. If you need to go, you can go. So. I said, okay, I, let me see what I can do. And so I called the airline. I could fly out the next morning, 1200 and something bucks. And so I called and told him, said, pay it. I'll pay you back when you get here. And so I get an airline ticket and fly to another two-hour flight and get there. He picks me up at the airport. And for 45 minutes from the airport to his church, he tells me about how great this couple is I'm about to talk to. So I listen. And I get to church. I spend an hour talking to her an hour talking to him, and then an hour talking to them. So three hours. And he takes me back to the airport, and on the way to the airport, he said, what do you think? I said, you wasted your money. He said, no, 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 I, I didn't waste my money. Whatever it cost, I said, no, you wasted your money. No, I'm, if whatever it, it costs, I'm willing to help. He said, they don't want your help. They don't need your help, first of all. You think they're going to get a divorce, don't you? Why? Well, that's what she's been saying. I said, sir, would you please just stop and think a minute? Do you really think she's going to do that? He owned the largest heating and air conditioning company in a town of over 2 million people. His annual sales is over $100 million a year. She gets a brand new car every year. All she's got to tell him is what model she wants, what kind. January 1st, it's parked in the driveway. She's drove Lamborghinis. She's drove Rolls Royces, Bentleys, Jaguars, whatever she had. A, she got a brand new car every year. I said, now why, why are, why did you bring me here? Well, they said, told me they're going to get a divorce. I said, why were they getting divorced? Well, she's mad at him. Why is she mad at him? Because he cut her allowance. See, her allowance was $10,000 a month. And he cut it to $5,000 a month. And she's mad. And that's pocket change. She don't have to spend it on nothing. She don't buy groceries. She don't buy clothes. She don't buy anything with that $5,000 a month. It's just money to blow. said, every lady in your church would line up and get in line to marry that guy. She's not leaving. Not going to happen. But the sad part of it was they have a 24-year-old and a 26-year-old that are in drug rehab. And the 26-year-old, it's about the fifth time. The 23-year-old is probably the third or fourth time. they got major drug addictions. But these two people... She's the prayer coordinator of the church, and he's men's director. So they've used church as a substitute for home. This church is no stronger than its families are. Strong churches do not build strong families. Strong families build strong churches. 
See, we've got this order thing out of, out of order. We think that God's order is God, the church, the family. That is not God's order. The family has been around 2,000 years longer than the church ever was. God's order is God, the family, and the church. If you don't get family correct, you drag all those issues from home right here. It becomes a chaotic event because we let things get by that, that we should correct. So when the two of them can't have a good relationship, they just go to church and get involved. So church become their addiction. And they're addicted to, to it being involved with people, not a relationship with God. See, that's what happens when you simply become hearers of the word and not doers of the word. When I, when I become a hearer only and I hear what's said and I, I, I don't practice what I hear, then I start trying to figure out the easiest way to get by. You know, I don't know if you read the Sermon on the Mount very carefully, but it's irritating. Everybody read it? If your brother's, you know, Charles sneaks up behind me and slaps me on my face, I don't want to turn the other one. If thy brother smite thee on the right cheek, turn the other one. We tried that a few times as kids. We usually got in a fight over it. Now, as adults, we don't do that anymore. But, you know, that's, that's irritating. See, what Jesus told us we need to learn how to do says that we have to learn how to conquer us in our flesh. We have to learn how to conquer the person I am because the person I am, first of all, is going to have a problem with family. It's not going to be a stranger. It's not going to be a neighbor. It's not going to be a boss. It's not going to be your job. It's going to be family. It's going to be the people that I say I love. That's where problems start showing up. And that's what causes chaos in our world. That's what produces problems in every assembly is when families start having chaos and no one does anything to solve the chaos. We just get addicted to things. We, we find something else to get involved in, something else to do. And as a result of finding something else to do or get involved in, it starts causing all kinds of chaos. Or they, she could pray about everybody's need. And, and they saw incredible miracles take place as a result of her getting her ladies together and having a prayer meeting. They had a strong men's group because he was dedicated to men, but he wasn't dedicated to two sons. She wasn't dedicated to two sons either because they both wound up in drug addiction, not because they, they had a drug problem. They raised in Pentecostal homes, sat on Pentecostal pews. How'd that happen? Maybe I shouldn't be talking about this kind of stuff. See, we, we, we come to church and think that as long as we keep it exciting and things happening, then people's lives are changed. But no matter what you hear preached, you've heard some of the greatest preaching that's ever heard in Pentecost. Your pastor is one of the greatest preachers around. I, he's my brother, and I am incredibly biased. But there is not a preacher in Pentecost any greater at preaching than he is. You've, we've heard the greatest we could ever think about. But if I don't start becoming a doer instead of just a hearer of what's being said, then my life is going to start having chaos. Because the next thing I'm going to try to figure out, well, how, what can I do so that I won't feel the pressure or the conviction that comes with what I heard so how, what, what's the shortcut around this? And Jesus knew that those people were listening to what he was saying and trying, they marveled. There's nobody teaches like this. He, he's not even, he teaches greater than the, scri the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Where in the world he learned how to speak like this? They marveled at his ability to speak. But they didn't put into practice one thing he had to say. And it was such an issue of his day that he repeated it at least five times, maybe more than five times, maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 30. If you take the entire New Testament and all that's written about Jesus Christ, out of his earthly life, you have less than 27 days recorded. 
So if, if we had everything that we could put together, only 27 days of his 33 and a half years of life is actually recorded in the scripture. We have very little. He repeatedly taught the same thing over and over and over again because there was a reason. Minimums don't work. Minimums of marriage, trying to see what you can get by with, will wreck a marriage. I can guarantee you that my, with with the lady I live with, if I had ever asked her the question, honey, what's the least amount of my time you need? Honey, what's the least amount of affection you need? Or, honey, how many times do I need to hug you every day so I at least get the right count in? My marriage would never lasted 47 years because I haven't spent 47 years trying to figure out shortcuts. And if you're going to do anything in life that's productive, you're not going to do it trying to find the path of least resistance or the, or, or the easy way out or the shortcut of, of how I can do this and it, and it work better or it, it, it's easier to do. You do the hard stuff. You choose to stay involved. You know what's sad? According to research, not by Pentecostals, by the world, by places like Berkeley and Caltech. According to research, children are not affected by peer pressure. They're affected by family pressure. The only way peer pressure affects their lives is if you make minimums out of them and you don't know where they're at, who they're with, or what they're doing. If you don't know where they're at, who they're with, or what they're doing, and you're not involved in their life, then they will find somebody who will stay involved. And that's when they start turning to their peers to get the affection, the approval, the recognition that they're needing from parents. When parents are not giving it, then they start looking for their peers to give this kind of information to them so that they're, they get validated in their what they, they need for life to exist, it happens by other people. The world says the way to keep your kids out of drugs, sex, and alcohol is to talk to them every day about not doing it. Just staying involved, having conversations with what's happening in your life. Who are your friends? I remember when Anthony was young, I know this has been recorded. I can get in trouble over this, but he was about 14 years of age, and I took him to youth service one Friday night, and I drove up in the parking lot of Life Tabernacle, and he said, Hey, Dad, let me out here. And I said, Why here? Well, I can walk. I said, Oh, okay. And I pushed the lock button on the car. And I drove right up to the front door, and I got out on my side and walked around and inserted the key and unlocked his door on his side and let him out. And I said, have a good day, Anthony. See, he didn't think it was cool for Dad to show up. Now, Dad could have made a choice that I don't, you know, I don't want the hassle. Now, I never got asked that question again. And what's amazing when when they were a little bit older and old enough for to drive and, and, and people hang around them, I, I used to have to park blocks down the street because I couldn't find a place even close to my house to park. I'd walk into my front door, and there'd, there'd be 20 young people in my living room, and they'd convince their mother to push all the furniture out of the way and drug the ping-pong table in from the garage, and they're in the middle of the house playing ping-pong. There's 20 of them at least there, and... I'd walk in and say, what are you guys doing here? And there's, their response was, well, we're having fun. Why can't you do that at your house? Why is it always my house? I did it on purpose because I wanted them to realize why they were at my house. And I'd, I'd make them think about it. Finally, after I kept asking the question, one of them would say, because it's safe here. 
There's no minimums at this house that people try to live by to see what the least amount of time they have to invest or be part of someone or, or being in, involved in their life. They're, they're not looking for minimums of parenting. Whosoever hears these things of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man. Whosoever hears these things of mine and doeth them not, I shall liken him unto a moros. Moron, right? Jesus said it. That's what Jesus said that day. I will liken you unto a moron if you don't do what you hear. You're foolish. All kinds of chaos going to happen, and you're going to blame the world and everybody else and, and, and everything around you for, for the chaos, and, and, and you're going to wonder why it's happening when, in fact, the reason it's happening is I'm just trying to find a shortcut to what life is. You know, it's amazing. Parents really want children when they're born, but when they get the place they irritate them in life, they're willing to let them, others be irritated by them. I was amazed being the principal of Life Christian Academy for those first nine years at how quickly parents would bring their kids to the school and dump them at the front door and expect us to put the right kind of values in them. And if we didn't, we were in serious trouble. If their kids ever did anything wrong, it was our fault because I didn't teach them not to lie. I didn't teach them not to steal. I didn't teach. And, and parents gladly gave up that right quickly to the church because it takes too much effort and energy. So we, we start developing minimums of marriage and then it's the minimums of kids and, and how much time I stay invested in. We've been running the Hughes daycare for 18 years now. And I, I do not begrudge one moment of that. I enjoy asking them how their day went. What's happening at school? What's going on in your life? I don't have a problem with that. I don't think a village raises a kid. I don't care who the lady was that said it. Village don't raise kids, and it doesn't take a village to raise them. It takes mom and dad, and it takes both mom and dad, not just mom or not just dad, but both mom and dad. And when mom and dad are involved in the life of kids, you don't have the chaos that's showing up in our world today. Politicians will never address that, even though they have all these facts, because they know it's not politically correct. The chaos of our world it's broken homes. It's broken families. It's the chaos that's happened as a result of divorce that went rampant in America during the 40s, then 60s, then 80s. Three 20-year intervals where it showed up. Go look at the statistics. 40s, 6s, 80s, or 40s, 60s, 80s, 20 years. Just enough time for all those kids affected by the first one to grow up and have kids and then they grew up and had kids, and, and now the, we, we have all this chaos. If we want to see our world change, it starts at your home with your relationship. You want a better church? You know, I, Mom and Dad were two unique people. I had the greatest parents in all the world. I never heard my dad ever say, I told you so. If you'd listen to me, this wouldn't have happened. I knew you'd do that. He never said those kind of things. Never. Now, he asked me questions that irritated me on a regular basis because I'd rather him say, I told you so, than ask me the question he's going to ask. But the question he asked on a regular basis is, well, son, what life teach you today? And it'd be easier for to be heard, I told you so, than it was to answer what, what what's the, the consequences of your bad behavior and what it produced that day. Well, life teach you anything today, son? Great parents. But you know what? Church didn't start at church at my house. Mom and dad 
didn't wait to get the house of God to have church. Church started at our dining room table on a regular basis. And I can remember several times mom and dad, dad would start praying for our, our meal and, and get just caught up in prayer and our food would get cold. That, that happened on a regular basis because they loved God. Mom and dad never asked my side of the story about anything. Never. If I got in trouble at church, I didn't get to explain what I did. I got to pick a switch off the tree next door, but I didn't get to explain nothing. Now, because of minimalism, we're, we're instead of valuing people that has, that you should be valuing, you're, you're, we're listening to stories of kids that tell slanted news. Mom was such a prayer warrior, I could walk through the front door of the house and she'd say, you got in trouble at school today, didn't you? She said, did, did Charles tell you? No. Margaret tell you? No. Did Mark tell you? No. You got in trouble at school today, didn't you? Well, how'd you know? You got in trouble. Just answer my question. You got in trouble at school today, didn't you? Yes, I did. How'd you know? I was praying. When you start church at home, God starts giving you lots of information to help your life be better, your family be better. If I wait till I get here to have church, then the only place I have true big Christians here. I travel quite extensively, and over the years I've made it a practice. If they'd let me rent a car, and they told me when I was coming, if you'd like to get a car at the airport so that you could get back and forth, go ahead. And if they gave me the opportunity, I always did, because I like to get to church early. I like to park in the side of the parking lot where I can watch people arrive. I got lots of sermons. Because Pentecostals don't come to church happy. They come to church with their hands moving and, and, and the kids hiding below the windows. They don't want nobody to see they're even in the car and these two adults in the front seat acting like two-year-olds are, are hollering at their blood vessels bulging on the neck, faces red, hands moving. And they pull in a parking slot and open the door and transformation happens instantly. I mean, just boom, it's transformation. And they can get out of the car with a smile on their face and, and, and come into the house of God and shout and run the aisles and go pick up where they left off on the way home. That's minimalism. Making minimums out of relationship. Don't have to invest. The church needs to start at home. It needs to start with my interaction with the people I say I love. And as I interact with them correctly, then it starts affecting the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. See, I am well aware that my behavior has the, pro- has the power to destroy several lives and several generations. My behavior can destroy my kids, my grandkids, my brothers, my sisters, my nieces, my nephews. My great nieces, my great nephews, my great great nephews and great great nieces. And I have the, that's my life. My life has that, your does too. To think that we're not going to affect anybody, that's a lie. That's making minimums out of relationship. If, if relationships are valuable enough for me to invest my time and my energy into it, then it, what, there is no cost. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure you find in the field. When you find the treasure, what do you do? You sell all that you have and you buy the treasure. You have to buy the field, don't you? What's in the field? Scorpions, snakes, lizards, skunks, dead things. There's a lot of junk in the field. But you buy the whole field. Why? There's a treasure there. In America, we fall in love with a dimple to discover there's a whole lot more than a dimple goes with it. And we already have exit strategies. We can get out if we need to. 
How'd that happen? We let our world introduce this new idea about making minimums out of everything. And it just started with what we looked at first, then what we lived in, and then it become part of what relationships are about. And people and people's lives are no longer important. You got to do more than here. You got to do. And when you start practicing the Word of God, lives start changing. Please stand. Gracious Father, thank you for your incredible Word. Thank you that you inspired writers. You inspired a tax collector to remember this sermon that you preached so many times in so many different places. And he would record it in his word in such a way that we could remember and understand how important this was to you. If this is your most important sermon, then it ought to become my most important activity in my life to try to practice. So, Jesus, I, I, I want to understand your word but I don't want to just understand it. I want it to become evident in my life as I start living my life and I start practicing and doing your word, not just hearing it. I don't let my relationship with you become an addiction or a substitute for anything, but I, I make it a relationship with you that's on the same equal plane as every other relationship. It's it's equal to or greater than my relationship with my wife and my children. I want a relationship with you, Jesus, not an addiction to you. And that relationship only happens when I become a doer of what your word has told me to do. When I start practicing not letting my light be hid under a bushel, not trying to find something in someone else's eye when I have a, a beam in my own eye, not, not practicing... Uh, forgiveness, forgiveness and forgiving others. When I bring my gift to the altar, I let you speak to my conscience. And when I recognize I've done something to someone else, I, I go fix the problem I created. Then I, I come back to your altar and present my sacrifice because your word declares this is what you're expecting us to do. So Jesus, help us today to not just become hearers of your word but doers of your word in the name of Jesus. Would you worship him for just a moment? We bless you today, Jesus. We bless you today, Jesus.